5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Thanks for tuning in to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The most influential podcast dedicated to the profession of pharmacy with over 80,000 listeners worldwide. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Podcast Nation. I'm excited today because we're returning to a facet of the publication of our network, which we had a cadence of podcast material for quite some time in the pharmacy compounding space, but people get busy. Our hosts are not only concentrating on audio publications, but they have worlds beyond the, the need to be giving us content, but we're excited to return to compounding pharmacy and bringing on Two very special guests, um, both um, I'm sure you're very well aware of, but the first I want to introduce is Scott Bruner, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Alliance for Pharmacy Compounding. And he and I, uh, the last time we talked, um, he was with the NCPA, and it's amazing to watch his career grow and him to now elevate to this leadership position. Welcome, Scott, and congratulations. Yeah, it's good to see you again, and thank you. We're happy to be with you. And also, uh, with regards to compounding and uh, no stranger to uh, the world of publishing and also his input to uh, the expertise of our pharmacy compounders is uh, Jim Hernser, which um, he's a pharmacist, an expert on hormones and thyroid and aging. And we have, before we started recording, we were talking about um, how compounding impacts uh, patients. And we're going to dig into a little bit of that today. But welcome, Jim. How are you? Well, thank you so much for having us, Todd. I want to just let both of you um, open up and, and share a little bit of yourselves um, in your world of of the pharmacy industry that we, we all love and, and serve. And I'm going to start with Jim. Share with us a little bit about your background. We opened our store back in 1984 and uh, just love patient care. Um, as a natural caretaker, compounding is, is a perfect way for me to express um, my love for, for people. And so it's a great way to take care of people. And, and the great thing about compounding is it allows me to use uh, both traditional medicine and integrative medicine to achieve the best patient outcomes. I mean, I will we'll talk a little bit more later about some of the amazing outcomes we have that might not be possible if we were limited to only traditional medicines. So it's great to have all those option treatment options available for us. So Scott, I want to shift to you for a second and take a, a step upward, 30,000 foot view, and that is state of the nation and compounding. There are forces at work that um, would much rather just produce a specific tablet or medication and in, in eliminating the compounding pharmacist. But I see such a need, actually an increased need in compounding pharmacists with some of the complexities of the disease states and comorbidity that's out there that patients are suffering, especially when I start thinking of topicals and pain care. Give us an overview of the work that Alliance for uh, Pharmacy Compounding is doing. And you just got done with your national show that you just did too and wanted to see how that went. 
Yeah, thanks. And and I would say, first of all, that APC is Jim's trade association. We are the professional organization for pharmacy compounders. A couple of years ago, we rebranded, we changed the name of our organization. We used to be the International Academy of Compounding Pharmacists. The fact was we weren't international and we represented a lot more folks uh, than just pharmacists. And so as the Alliance for Pharmacy Compounding, uh, we represent 503As and 503Bs. We represent the pharmacists and the technicians uh, who practice compounding, but we also represent supply chain professionals and educators and prescribers and even some patients. And our core competency is advocacy. So what does what the, the, the state of play look like for compounding right now? Frankly, if there's one thread that ties everything we're working on together, it is this idea of an FDA that seeks at every turn to restrict pharmacy compounding. It doesn't seem to matter to the FDA that federal law defines uh, specifically a place for pharmacy compounding in the American healthcare system. FDA continues to remind consumers and everybody else that uh, Compounded uh, preparations are not FDA approved. And FDA makes the leap to say that because each individual preparation is not approved, they must therefore by necessity be unsafe. It's illogical, but it is the argument that FDA continues to make and through its policies is doing things to deprive patients who rely on compounded preparations uh, of those medications that in many instances are life-sustaining, life-enhancing, and there are millions of patients nationwide, of course, uh, that depend on compounded preparations. So we could talk about a number of, of, of issues, and maybe we'll get to those in this conversation. Certainly the threat to compounded hormones, uh, FDA has implied that it will uh, base restrictions on compounded hormones on a, on a seriously flawed study, flawed study that FDA itself self-manipulated to get the results uh, that it wanted. And if that sounds like hyperbole, it's not. We have, through a FOIA request, we can prove that FDA did that. We see overreach in terms of their proposed GFI on animal compounding, where they would attempt to limit veterinarians uh, to prescribing compounded medications that have to begin uh, with manufactured drugs. Uh, we see it in FDA's opposition to a piece of legislation that basically enacts into law something that FDA has allowed in uh, during the during the pandemic, or urgent use legislation that would allow 503As to source um, uh, medications, shortage medications to hospitals and specialty clinics. FDA came out in a memo two weeks ago to the Energy and Commerce Committee that they would uh, be opposed to that, even though their temporary guidance does pretty close to the same thing the bill does. And then, of course, the MOU. Uh, and we've been saying all along that FDA overstepped in the way it promulgated the MOU. It conflated definitions. Well, last month, a federal judge, based on some litigation filed by seven um, pharmacy uh, compounding pharmacies, a federal judge agreed and has sent the MOU back to FDA uh, to say you skip some steps here. And so those are just a few of the issues that we're grappling with. Um, we believe, despite uh, what I've said, that, that there is middle ground on these issues, uh, that we could work with FDA, uh, maybe the same way that FDA seems to be able to work quite well with Big Pharma, we would be willing to work with FDA to come up with regulation that protects patients, that ensures compliance, but is also practical and doesn't uh, deprive those patients of the kinds of services that Jim and his colleagues across the country provide uh, to patients every day. 
So I just started watching uh, Dope Sick, which is a new uh, short series that's pushed out by Hulu. And it's the, uh, the details and story around uh, Oxycontin and how the painkiller became relentlessly marketed by Purdue Pharma and um, really helped to uh, be a, a huge catalyst in the opioid epidemic that we had in the United States. And within that, um, you know, that, that program, which I understand the difference between fact and enhancements to fact, and obviously you have to have the consumer to be able to understand uh, what they're watching. But a component of it that did come up as fact, which was the, is how the FDA um, was, was part of uh, an issue and how there was a special label developed um, for a, uh, um, a 12 hour effective um, uh, Oxycontin uh, tablet that sure enough could you know, patients learn to get around that. And, and, and then of course the abuse, abuse started to come out of that. But, uh, you know, I, I think um, that there's two hands in the body of what is the FDA. And sometimes the right and left hand don't know what's happening because of politics, right. because of policy build out. And that makes me think of the, the compounding arena and how um, the, the, the original pharmacist, which was derived from a physician that became an expert in medication development, was compounding the most raw of ingredients to ensure that their patients' ailments or the treatment that their patients needed were customized. And we hear a lot about customization medicines and pharmacogenomics and precision medicine. And I'm thinking, wait a second, those are some sexy terms and, you know, they're, they're, you know, it's all the buzz right now today, but compounders have been around for the Egyptian times. Like the, the compounders have been here. So Jim, what do you think the deal is? And, and why is this such a, 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 an element of contention when it, when it comes to um, what's best in the best interest of patients? You know, when I think about uh, this, because the really the contention is between compounding and FDA and uh, I'm not an anti FDA. They have a place. They have a job to do. And for the most part, I think they do a pretty good job. Um, the The problem is, is it that and this is what was stated in a, in a public forum by uh, outgoing uh director of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, he said there's an anti-compounding culture within the FDA. And I thought, you know, he just said it out loud. He, did, he didn't just imply, he said it. And, uh, and he said, we didn't want to know what you did. All we wanted to know is how to shut you down. And, uh, and of course, through these Freedom of Information Act uh, emails, we've, we've seen exactly that. We, we know that they, they want to put another nail in the coffin of compounders on a regular basis. And so that's bothersome when a regulatory agency that is supposed to be enforcing the will of Congress is going out there and trying to make its own policy and trying to decide this industry needs to die. We're going to kill this industry. And, and that, that should bother everybody. You know, whether you're a doctor who they decide, well, let's just let's just rid, get rid of doctors. Let's get rid of lawyers. Let's get rid of CPAs. You know, you can't just determine through an enforcement agency that you should get rid of anything like a, like compounding, you know, that, that just is ridiculous. I think that, that we all can agree on that. And no matter what um, side you're of, are on this. And so the main thing is, is that for the most part, compounders really want to give good quality. They want to do the right thing. And, uh, and just like in Texas, for an example, 
um, I was, uh, uh, I and a few other high level compounders asked the state board, Hey, could we help you maybe, uh, determine what, is the minimum standard of practice your inspector should be looking for when they go into a pharmacy. You know, we're not afraid of, of the inspectors and of regulators um, asking us to do a good job, you know? And so we're worried about the unethical people that are out there that don't do a good job. And in every industry has that, you know, every industry has some bad actors. You know, when you hear about a bad doctor, we don't try to shut down the profession of medicine. And when we hear a couple of a bad, uh, practitioners in compounding pharmacy, we don't try to, sh we should not try to shut down the entire industry. We should say, you know what, let's get rid of the bad actors. And, and if I could add to, to something Jim said, I, and this is my theory, you can uh, disagree if you wish. Um, I think FDA took such a tongue lashing from Congress in the wake of the NECC tragedy and the pain cream scandals, et cetera, that uh, they can't get past that, and and that they had a a, a a huge swath of staffers that decided then compounding bad, and so that's the way they continue to operate. Now, never mind that NECC was a crime. I, 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 I mean, FDA's approach is, well, if we only had more laws and more regulations, this wouldn't have happened. No, it was a criminal operation. Uh, it was it was tragic, it was catastrophic, and it was indefensible. And it's a huge black eye on pharmacy compounding. But FDA got, I think, from Congress, the idea that they needed to restrict uh, and marginalize pharmacy compounding. And so ever since that, we're going nearly 10 years now, um, that is the way FDA has promulgated policy rather than seeing pharmacy compounding as an essential piece. Uh, as you described, Todd, it's, it's, it, it's kind of come full circle. It's where pharmacy started. And now we're coming back to customized medications uh, in, in, in a big way, instead of seeing it as an essential piece of the American um, healthcare system and drug supply chain. You know, the overwhelming majority of Americans, when they, when they ask about healthcare, which would you want personalized healthcare? And the overwhelming majority say, yes, I, I, I not only want that, I expect that. And, uh, and now as compounders, we give individualized care. You know, we're doing customized treatments, whereas um, traditional medicine does a great job. Most of my friends are traditional doctors. So let's not bad mouth traditional medicine, but uh, sometimes there's, there's times when we can do a darn good job uh, inserting ourselves into that and, and having patient outcomes that are amazing. I mean, let's just look at, at hormones, for example. Um, more than half of Americans that are on hormones are using compounded hormones. I mean, I think that last time I saw is about 8 million patients when you talk, when you conglomerate all the men and the women together. And that's a lot of folks who are depending on this personalized custom medications for themselves. And are they safe? Yes. I mean, are we seeing outcomes that are amazing? Yes. Are the patients really happy? Yes. Otherwise, they wouldn't stick with it. They'd go to, to the doctor and ask, ask for a manufactured product, get their insurance to cover it, and it would be less money. Yeah. Even though, even though we cost the system less money and Scott will agree with me, our compounds might be for hormones might be 30 or $40. And, uh, but if it's not covered on insurance, it seems like, oh, that's 30 or $40. Well, my copay on my prescriptions is $65. So that's a bargain. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and, and the other thing I would mention here, just to add on again to what Jim is saying, Todd, is I think FDA tends to leave out of the equation that compounded preparations are prescribed by a physician. It's not like a bunch of pharmacists got together and suddenly decided that this was the right therapy therapy 
for their patients. There's the triad between the patient, the prescriber, and the pharmacist, but it begins with the prescriber seeing a need for that customized medication. And I think FDA leaves that out of the dialogue and in their, in their effort to marginalize, they attempt to practice medicine by depriving physicians of a, a very useful and effective tool. As Jim says, there's tons of, of, of patient outcomes data that demonstrate the effectiveness of compounded hormones and a range of other compounded preparations as well. FDA has decided, well, patient outcomes are not science. We're not gonna look at that. We're only gonna take double blind placebo, whatever, whatever test. And of course there are thousands of formulations uh, of pharmacy compounds. You're not gonna have double blind uh, research uh, test of, of, of research projects for, for all of those. And so, FDA has set up compounders for something which is impossible. Um, you, you can't have those kinds of tests demonstrating effectiveness, but they fail to look at patient outcomes. So the FDA revises hospital and health system compounding guidance to help preserve patient access to compounded drugs. That's actually posted right on the FDA's website. So there I thought was some light at the uh, in the issue of, you know, being uh, well, it kind of it, 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 it kind of is, except FDA seems to have some baffling inconsistency in terms of what they've done. They've right now hand said, right hand up. right right. They've now <laughs> said that hospitals can dispense um, a, 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 basically a five hundred three A in a hospital compounding center can dispense preparations uh, without a patient uh, specific prescription but they forbid 503As to provide that kind of uh, compounding in shortage to a local clinic or a physician clinic. We don't get it. Why is it, why is it okay on the one hand and not on the other? Yes, this is uh, peculiar. And I'm thinking of how the um, patients are being impacted. Before we started recording, Jim and I were talking about a very specific subject and that is hormone replacement and how this is impacting hundreds, if not thousands of his patients, and not only the patient, but the patient's family members, because these people are feeling so much better about themselves and it's improving relationships. It's improving the way that they wake up in the morning and it's improving their weight loss. It's improving healthier living. And Jim, can you kind of expand upon that uh, facet of your treatment? And I do love that part. Um, hormones are one of my favorite there. I do a lot of different diverse therapies um, and helping my my docs and my patients. But I can tell you that the hormones are just a you get a lot of bang for the buck with them, you know, because number one, a patient feels better. The quality of life is improved. But number two, we see health markers improving. We, we see them being healthier than patients are not. An example, um, a recent study from the University of Arizona um, done on several hundred thousand patients, women, showed that, that women who are using uh, bioidentical hormones were 78% less likely to develop dementia than women who are using nothing. And women who are on uh, manufactured hormones like Prempro, Primrin, uh, were about 50% less likely. So here we have a, a significant increase in protection against dementia, which is significant. I mean, I, and we also see like decreases in risk of breast cancer and, and heart disease and uh, osteoporosis, um, even mental health conditions. You know, women feel more stable and more calm. Men feel more stable, more calm when their hormones are right. 
Um, uh, an example, um, we have soldiers who have, I do a lot of work with soldiers who've had traumatic brain injury and PTSD. And the brain injury causes a resulting um, emotional disturbances, including suicide ideation, uh, depression, um, uh, severe anxiety disorder, PTSD, as I said, um, and, uh, and, and even um, they, they start medicating, self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. When we decrease the inflammation in their brain with compounds, for instance, testosterone for these guys is a neuroactive steroid. It calms down inflammation in the brain. They start feeling more like themselves. They start having interaction. We give them some oxytocin on the side. They start having more social interaction with their families and their wives. One guy called me the other day. He said, Jim, I'm watching uh, child movies with my kids and I'm loving it. And he said, before you started helping me with my brain, I would have never dreamed that I would have been in in my man cave by myself watching the sports. This is the difference you've made in my family and my life. You know, that is huge. That's huge. And so and just think about it. if it's doing it for these guys, what is it doing for men and women all over America? Just just like you said, the relationships, you know, that is a healthy relationship between a man and a woman or, or, or between partners is amazing. Um, when we have all facets of that relationship satisfied. And so we love the fact that these hormones, like I say, not only improve quality of life, but also health. We have at, at compounding.com, which is a website APC has set up to collect patient stories specifically related to compounded hormones. Uh, we have 5, 000, about 5,000 right now testimonials that are stories just like the one Jim has shared. There's some videos there. Uh, many of them are written, but they are heartwarming. Some will make you cry. There are marriages that have been saved. There are suicides that have been prevented. There are lives that have been changed because of compounded hormone therapy. Uh, I would urge uh, listeners to go there and look at some of those. You can search them by state. Uh, share a testimonial there if you have one, and then share a message with Congress because, as we we indicated earlier, uh, compounded hormone therapy is um, in the sights at FDA, and we want to make sure that Congress understands uh, the, the, the range of individuals that benefit from the therapies. I think some may think it's only thera a, thera a therapy for women. It's not, as Jim has indicated, for men as well. For the trans community, it is a, a, a significant therapy. And so um, we aim to preserve the ability of patients to, uh, to be able to access compounded hormones. And that's what um, the compounding.com website is all about. But go and read the, the testimonials at a minimum. Uh, it will, uh, it's eye-opening. Scott, you brought up a really valid point earlier, and I, I'm not sure that a lot of the listeners who are not familiar with compounding understood it, but, but uh, the FDA commissioned a study uh, at NASM, National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, and they said, we would like to study the uh, clinical utility and safety of compounded bioidentical hormones. And, uh, and so we thought, well, gosh, this is going to be a scientific study and they're going to have uh, no bias involved. And it's going to be NASM, you know, it's going to be so great. And, uh, and Scott asked me, Hey, would you testify? And I said, heck, I'd love to testify. And uh, I got in front of that, that group and I'd seen all these negative testimonies all morning and I was nervous as heck. And uh, cause I saw that the panel was not compounding friendly. Every one of them were hostile to compounding. So in other words, it was not an unbiased panel that the, that NASA had put together and that the FDA had put together. So I, I was on the hot seat and, and one of the, um, uh, rather nasty <laughs> internal medicine ladies, you know, she says, so Jim, 
you said that your patients are quote doing better than other patients and she did the air quotes to me and and she said and so your doctors noticed that and started sending you compounded biodegradable hormone prescriptions now how do you justify doing better. And I said, well, it's interesting in traditional medicine, uh, both the North American menopause society and the endocrine society both say that a measure of a successful patient outcome in hormones is, is the patient feeling better? Oh, she got mad when I did that, you know, and I wasn't trying to, to upset her. I just simply did back to her what she did to me. <laughs> and, uh, and then I said, but you know what, we go on to do more than just is a patient doing better? Are they feeling better? We're actually doing bone density. We're doing mammograms. We're doing thermograms. We're doing uh, uh, measuring the lining of the uterus to see how the endometrial stripe is doing. We're doing all kinds of preventative medicine. And we're seeing these patients anywhere from two to four times a year as opposed to once a year for a traditional gynecologist. And I said, doctor, if a patient sees um, a doctor three to four times a year, do they have a better chance of a, a successful patient outcome than a patient who sees a doctor one time a year? And well, she looked at me and she was just flabbergasted that, that I actually had an answer for what and justifying what we're doing because it was so far out of her realm of thought. And, and another endocrinologist who had testified negatively against hormones all morning, um, she listened to my testimony and she came up to me afterwards. She, she teaches medical school at the University of San Diego, endocrinology. And she came up to me and she and she's about, you know, 57 years old, you know, obviously menopausal. And she says, Jim, she says, I'm sorry. And I said, well, why are you sorry? She said, I gave all that negative testimony, but I didn't know about you guys. I just didn't know what I didn't know. And she said, I would like you to handle my personal hormone case. <laughs> and, and so it, in other words, there's a lot of unknowns about what we do. And, uh, you know, they think that it's some kind of uh, uh, witchcraft and, and, uh, and they were mixing in bathtubs in the, in the back bathroom or something, you know, they don't understand the science that we possess and that we have studies that, that show that what we're doing is valid and that it is, it is incredibly helpful for our patients. Uh, well, and let me again. I'm going to add on to what Jim 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 said, um, and he and I are both, as you can tell, passionate about this. the The interesting thing about FDA commissioning that study from NASM is that FDA touted it as independent and unbiased. And it was neither of those things. They told the committee uh, in advance that they felt like compounded hormones were dangerous and should be restricted. They helped NASM seat the committee. So when Jim talks about these people that don't have uh, any background in prescribing or compounding uh, hormones, uh, they're lovely people. We don't, it's not their integrity that we're, 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 we mean to mischaracterize. It's that they didn't have any subject matter expertise. And yet FDA put them on the panel. FDA fed them, quote, research to look at or not look at. They did not even look at the full range of the most prescribed uh, compounded hormones. They only looked at really two or three hormones and then made a blanket uh, recommendation that FDA should restrict compounded hormones across the board. Um, so all of that we we learned from uh, a Freedom of Information Act request uh, that was initiated by the Reed Smith Law Firm. So it's all validated, uh, and it, it 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 it's a big surprise that FDA would then say, "Well, we we're we're looking at basing potential restrictions of compounded hormones on this study that we manipulated." 
No, they didn't add the, that we manipulated part. That was my own little addition there. Uh, Todd, they even manipulated the results of the study. Um, they not only manipulated from from begin before the study started, which which is no longer a study if it's bias piece. If it, if it's science, that's one thing. But if it's a bias piece from beginning, during the process, and then in the results of reporting, if biases are are uh, uh, used in all three of those areas, it's not a science piece. It is a bias piece. It's a, an opinion piece. It's an editorial. I mean, it's it has nothing to do with science. And I'm so I was really sad about that. They they went on to say that that women who choose to use compounded biological hormones are not smart enough to make health decisions about their own health care. They also said that doctors who prescribed biological hormones because they've been having quote success with those were not smart enough to be um, making clinical decisions about their patients. They said that out loud. Jeez. I'm sorry, but that's not okay. No. My doctors are pretty smart and, uh, and my patients are very well self-educated. You know, they don't just simply just do what the doctor tells them because the days of Marcus Welby are gone. I don't know if anybody remembers who Marcus Welby is, but he was a doctor who knew everything right for you. And, uh, and patients these days ask questions and they educate themselves before they jump into a therapy. And I yeah. love that about patients. I, I, I think too, one, one point to make, because it's certainly um, a reference point for, for the NASM report. FDA and many others seem to think that uh, CGMP, current good manufacturing practices, should be the standard even in compounding. Uh, and and the, the NASM report seemed to um, want to compare compounded hormones to the new drug approval process. And it's, it's, it's apples and oranges. Um, the federal law, the Food Drug and Cosmetic Act that carves out in 503A the ability of compounders uh, to prepare pep preparations without FDA approval does not mention CGMP, does not suggest that, that a, 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 your local pharmacy that does compounding should adhere to the same standards as manufacturers because it's a customized medication. Now realize all those materials that they are using come from FDA approved facilities. In many instances, the pharmacies themselves are approved by, or are, are uh, inspected by FDA. Um, certainly the state boards of pharmacy are inspecting those facilities. You can rely on safety uh, and compliance with rules and regs, but CGMP is just a step too far. And not only on compounded hormones, but on a range of other issues, FDA has made that assertion. Oh, CGMP is what really these folks should really be doing. The federal law does not require that. Scott, how many standalone compounding pharmacies are there in the United States today? Well, that's a good question. I, if you come up with an answer to that, Todd, I would love to have it. Um, the problem is with the definition. If I am your local Main Street pharmacy, and I'm, I used to work for the Georgia Pharmacy Association, I love Georgia. If I'm in Valdosta, Georgia on Main Street, and I do two or three compounded preparations a week, uh, but the overwhelming majority of my stuff is traditional retail dispensing, am I a compounding pharmacy? On the other hand, Jim does, the, the preponderance of what he does is pharmacy compounding. He is obviously one. How to get our arms around even a definition is tough. I suspect if you wanna say pharmacies that self-define themselves as compounders, there could be as many as five to 7,000, but it, it's really difficult even for FDA and um, some of these um, intelligence gathering firms on Wall Street to try to get their arms around what is the number because everybody's definition of the market is different. Mm -hmm. 
I ask that because I believe that the compounders, the pharmacists, the pharmacy owners that are out there that could develop relationships with their state representatives and do tours with them while they invite some of their best patients who are on these compounded medications who could be a testimony to how bioidentical hormones have changed their life and being able to tour them through the facility, you know, yeah. get some coffee with each other, sit there and have a discussion. And our appointment could go a long way if you're listening right now and you have a compounding component to your community pharmacy, or if like Jim, you're primarily a compounding pharmacy, how often are you are you getting a legislator involved in understanding the benefits that you're presenting to their constituents and to your community and to the impact that you're making to patients' lives and then pull out a spreadsheet as the tour is finished and and give them the data of here's, you know, basic expenses of compounding, here's the reimbursement, here's the outcomes. That should turn on some bright lights in the minds of these legislators and understanding we actually need more compounding, we don't need less compounding. Yeah, we call that take your legislator to work, uh, and we urge, we urge pharmacy compounders uh, to do it, to invite your local legislator, but also your member of Congress. And this year, we're probably moving toward, we've had 20 or so congressional visits uh, uh, by members of Congress to compounding pharmacies uh, to talk about the, the, the very issues that you've, you've just mentioned. Matter of fact, uh, we're going to there be quite a few of us in uh, Washington D.C. Uh, on Monday, flying in Monday, and we're going to be seeing them on Wednesday. Um, uh, we're going into our congressmen's offices. Uh, a lot of us have been doing that every year, and uh, I got to know my congressman pretty well. Then he retired, and a new congressman was being elected, and I got very serious in the re-election or into the election campaign for this congresswoman. And uh, and so anyway, she knows me. She knows my store. Um, she's been in here to get medications before. Um, she likes compounding. It helped her children. Uh, one of her ch children had, uh, had ophthalmic issues as a baby, and compounding was the only solution for that. So she's very happy about compounding. Her dad's a doctor. So I think we're going to have another ally in, in D.C., Todd, I may have been a little flippant in answering your question about a number of compounding pharmacies, but one, one, one statistic I can tout, um, APC represents uh, just under 600 entities. So we would, the individual pharmacies, some of those may be distributors, uh, maybe a few educators in there, but um, individual standalone entities, that's, that's what our numbers look like. Our membership is a little over a thousand uh, individuals. Well, the Pharmacy Podcast Network has missed um, a, a consistent source of information on compounding, and we are excited to uh, kick off a new initiative, a reinvigorated initiative. Um, Scott, I'm so glad that the, the A4PC.org, which is the Alliance for Pharmacy Compounding, is the website. I'm going to have the A4PC dot org um, link in the website as well as uh, in the show notes as well as compounding.com um, Jim I'm gonna have your uh, LinkedIn profile also in the show notes so that other pharmacists and pharmacy owners that uh, would like to link up and network with you are there I want to invite both of you back to the pharmacy podcast network um, Scott we 
we'll have to work on a, a reoccurring show that we can talk with um, a multitude of your members that we can really dig down not in, not only into specific disease states, but collaborative discussions with physicians who are specialists in specific conditions and treatments that we can really talk to our audience of 82,000 plus listeners that are out there about the benefits of compounding and then use this content to get some of these conversations out to the community as well as um, maybe some of the representatives that are out there as well. Yeah, say when. We would love, we awesome. would love to do that. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. Oh, I thank, you thank you so much. I want to thank you both for um, being part of this discussion, re-kicking off this. I, like I said, I believe in the community pharmacist, the independent pharmacist, and I also saw the, the benefits of, of compounding when I was a, a member of the IACP back in the day that has now transformed into the Alliance for Pharmacy Compounding. So I appreciate both of what you do, and, and thank you so much for spending time with us today. You are great to have right. us. Thank you. Glad thank, to be thanks here. again, and thanks for what you're doing for pharmacy. Thank you.